Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm your host, Paula Thomas, and if you work in loyalty marketing, join me every week to learn the latest ideas from loyalty specialists around the world. So Mike Capizzi is the founding partner of Marketing Strategists, LLC, which is a US-based loyalty consulting firm. His body of work reflects a global practice with over 200 clients served, and he has actually designed, launched, operated, analyzed, or unbelievably shut down over 80 individual loyalty programs across all vertical markets. Mike serves as the Dean of the Loyalty Academy, and he is a partner in the Wise Marketer Group and also the Customer Strategy Network. Mike has over 45 years experience as a veteran in the marketing services industry, so he has incredibly deep knowledge of the loyalty marketing space. In addition to that, he's a globally recognized speaker and author in the loyalty arena, and he is also a certified loyalty marketing professional, which we call CLMP. Mike has taught loyalty and marketing courses to more than a thousand professionals and students at five U.S. universities and among practitioners in over 15 different countries. He previously served as the U.S. faculty leader for the three-day MBA program in loyalty marketing and was an original faculty member for the Templeton College, Oxford University, UK loyalty marketing workshop for executives. He holds a BBA in marketing from the University of Cincinnati and an MA in media from New York University. He's also a noted advisor to private equity and investment analysts in investigating, understanding and profiling marketing services firms who represent potential investment opportunities. Now, today is a particularly exciting day uh, for all of us actually in the loyalty industry because the main reason that Mike is coming on the show today is because hot off the presses, he has just released a fantastic report which really gives us a great understanding on some critical issues for our industry. So, the report is called the Delphi Report and the subject that we're going to discuss today is exactly why do loyalty programs fail? So, first and foremost, I'd like to welcome Mike Capizzi to Let's Talk Loyalty. Hi, Paul. <laughs> Great to talk to you, Mike. How are you today? I am good. That was a very long introduction, so it means that I am really old. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry about that, but I mean, so much credentials, Mike. I mean, we couldn't miss out on any of that amazing detail. Thank so, you. Yeah. So, I'm super delighted to be able to talk to you. And first of all, I'm sure you're very relieved that uh, that you've managed to get the, the Delphi report out. So, tell us um, exactly what you've been working on over the last few months. Well, Paul, as, as I think you know, um, we put together a panel of experts from different regions of the world. Um, last year was the first year we had the panel collectively uh, come up with an interpretation of what the future of uh, loyalty marketing might look like. And we published that report a year ago and we got a tremendous response from all over. Mm. So we thought we would do it again. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we started looking at subjects, we um, honed in 
on uh, a saying from a, a British essayist, a guy by the name of Max Beerbaum. And Max used to say that there is much to be said for failure. It is more interesting than success. And we <laughs> thought that was kind of his uh, ironic way of uh, letting us know that if we looked at some of the potential reasons for failure in loyalty marketing programs, and we could assign importance uh, to those reasons in some kind of a weighted rank order, then we could uh, conceivably help other people with the topic. So we reconvened the Delphi panel. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a very old research technique where a bunch of individuals who are experts in their field, mm -hmm. I'll talk about that in a second, mm -hmm. um, are all given the same task. Um, they score things or talk about things or define things in a specific manner, and then they share it with everybody else on the panel. And uh, the topic gets vetted, it gets debated until some kind of consensus is reached. Um, so what we have published is the 2019 Delphi report on uh, why programs fail. And uh, we took the word failure in a broad context. Mm -hmm. uh, it means uh, not just outright failure of loyalty programs, but also ineffectiveness uh, that would cause redesign or um, some other start stop. Um, the scorecard was uh, developed in the fall and summer of 2019, just released mm -hmm. in uh, November. Mm -hmm. And uh, 34 global loyalty experts uh, from um, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, uh, South Africa, India, Singapore, uh, Brazil, um, Russia, Malaysia, the US, and of course the UAE. Uh, most of these people have got 25 years of experience. Mm -hmm. They look at things from both a consumer and a B2B loyalty perspective, mm -hmm. but all 34 uh, are CLMPs uh, and they served mm -hmm. as this year's panelists. So um, that's the rundown. Um, the technique is quite proven. Mm -hmm. It is a very good predictive technique. Mm -hmm. And uh, the panel uh, um, went after the task of trying to predict um, the things that will cause failure for programs in the future. Well, I mean, that's super impressive, Mike. I think, first of all, no one could accuse you of not uh, searching the length and breadth of the globe to get um, a realistic uh, view of what's going on in every single market. And having looked just at the preview myself now over the last day or two, I think probably what scared me, first of all, is between this panel, um, we have over 500 years of loyalty experience, which uh, <laughs> uh, makes us all feel a bit old, I think, Mike. But uh, I suppose gives us the the depth of expertise we we need to have in order to comment. I believe so, and we you know certainly wanted um, spread on uh, the geographical perspective. You'll mm. see a couple things in the report where, depending upon what part of the world the Delphi panelist um, sat mm. in, um, mm -hmm. the response was a little bit different. Absolutely. So um, we're going to get into the details now, obviously, of why do loyalty programs fail? Um, and I suppose the key thing for people listening to the show is we're not going to cover absolutely every detail uh, because that would just make the show too long. But the key is we'll give out the highlights. We'll certainly talk through the top reasons why loyalty programs fail. So immediately, obviously, all the listeners can start thinking about that. And then most importantly, we'll make sure that everybody knows 
elsewhere to get a copy of the full report uh, because I think any of us who are invested in this industry and in being our best selves in terms of loyalty professionals will definitely want to be able to come and download the full report. And um, as I said, it's hot off the presses. So as this goes out on air in the middle of November, it's something that's brand new for people to, um, to, to, to read through. Excellent. Great. Okay. So, Mike Capizzi, you've done all of the work. It's been, as you said, a number of months, um, you know, great expertise. And I know there's 10 reasons in total that were weighted and assessed. What I loved in terms of your terminology and writing, even the preview, was there was definitely consensus with the top five reasons on why loyalty programs fail. So, I suppose we should just start at the beginning. What's the number one reason that loyalty programs fail? We're not going to have a drum roll. (laughs) That was my best drum roll verbally. (laughs) The uh, number one reason, according to the panelists, is poor use of data. Um, This was scored by 93.5% of all panelists. Um, So they gave it some weight. It was the number one answer from over half of the panelists. And uh, all told, it came in with the highest weighted score and the highest average score. Um, What the panel was talking about is that we've got these programs that spin off an awful lot of data about the customer. Mm -hmm. Um, And we don't use the data that is at our disposal. Um, Mm. They were specifically concerned about inadequate segmentation. Um, If you've got a data stream from, you know, hundreds of uh, B2B or thousands upon thousands of consumers, and you don't sort and segment that database um, on the variables that are included, uh, then you're asking for trouble. Um, What ends up happening, Paula, is um, inadequate segmentation leads to a lack of versioning. And that means that both the value proposition to the loyalty program member and or the communications that go out to the loyalty program member uh, end up being one size fits all. Um, Mm. And the um, inability to uh, use specific um, KPIs or key performance indicators uh, Mm. or predictive models that are tied to, say, potential spend or upsell, cross-sell, Uh, Mm. churn, or maybe social advocacy. These things can all be derived. They're all Mm. data-driven. And um, the absence of the KPIs was especially troublesome to the panel because uh, loyalty programs should have key performance indicators. Mm. We shouldn't have to look out a year from now and say, oh, is the program working or not working? We shouldn't Mm. have to do that. Um, Mm. We should have set a standard, uh, Mm -hmm. a variety of standards on a bunch of key metrics and mm-hmm. track our performance against those metrics. You'll see that coming up again later on in our mm. talk. So overall, mm. um, the panelists said that if you've got inadequate measurement and you lack the use of advanced data analytics, um, it will be the number one reason why your program becomes ineffective, if not uh, outright failure. Yeah. And and great to get a consistent view. Um, and I'm sure you're relieved to see that coming through, Mike, because it's probably harder to um, to learn from something if there isn't consensus. And even from reading your preview report, what I also picked up even on the, the poor use of data was um, sometimes asking too much data uh, because obviously, you know, when you're when you're building loyalty strategies, you do want the best, you know, quantity of data as well as 
quality of data. So I think there is in many industries a temptation to to be greedy, perhaps, um, and that causes its own problems. And that is one of the things that I kind of picked up is a poor use of data, as well as, as you've articulated there, having the data and then not absolutely using it in the way that it could be used. Um, so it sounds like there's a number of reasons driving that concern. Were there any particular reasons that you picked up on? Well, you know, the old rule uh, that not everyone follows is don't ask for it if you're not going to use it. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's very popular in many consumer loyalty programs to ask for um, their birthday, for example. And then yeah. my birthday comes and passes and nobody did anything. Yeah. So don't collect it unless you're going to use it. And in um, today's world, most regions of the world speed at the point of enrollment, uh, ease and no friction, which you'll see down the list here in a, in a bit, are all yeah. very, very, very important. So if we keep yeah. asking for more and more pieces of information. Um, I think that that could be a, a negative. But the real issue with the panel, Paula, uh, mm. was the fact that we don't look at our transactional sequences uh, the way that we should. Um, mm. We don't lay those against other variables that we know about the uh, about the member, um, mm. predictive ability. Uh, yeah. We say all of this is too hard or all of this is too expensive. Um, there are some great quotes in the actual report from uh, panelists around the world. Uh, and everyone just says, look, we, we've got the ability to clearly understand what the membership is doing. Um, mm. and how that impacts us as a brand in a mm. uh, financial way. And mm. we've got that ability because we have the information. How come we're not doing something with it? And yeah. that is uh, that was the number one reason for uh, why the panelists felt a program uh, could be ineffective. Absolutely. And again, because it's the number one, I suppose, um, you know, we should give it a bit of extra time. What I also did uh, pick up and you've referred to it there, Mike, is maybe some companies are not giving sufficient resources to um, to allow the marketing team or the loyalty marketing team to go and do all of the versioning and variations that are possible with the data that they're holding. So I often experience under-resourcing you know, at different stages in the life cycle of the of the overall loyalty program. And then you end up, as one of the quotes says, I think around, you know, it ends up being a machine gun approach because the loyalty manager is like, I just got to get something out. I don't have time to do 20 variations. I think that that's accurate, Paula. It's unfortunate, but I believe yeah. that's the way that it is. And um, we, can all, yeah. we can all scream about resources. Uh, yeah. All of us in this industry are probably under-resourced or under-budgeted, yeah. but yeah. Um, it isn't the cost of uh, the resource and mm. the analytics themselves. It's mm. the return that will come to the program because mm. of the analysis. Mm. Uh, and if we look at it from a yield perspective instead of a cost perspective, uh, we'll yeah. be much better off. Absolutely. And that's certainly something I learned doing my CLMP with you, Mike, was was very much around, you know, put the business case together in terms of what behavior shift is expected. And again, I suppose once we're all educated in terms of what the expectations are, then the rationale for increased resources is just an easier conversation to have with the senior management team. Which is going to lead us to reason number two, Paula. And you'll, find, and you'll find throughout <laughs> the report that these reasons are all very much linked to each other. Which sure. is why, well, one of the reasons why it took the panel so long to sort everything out. 
because okay. one thing is, is kind of like driving another thing. But reason number two for why mm-hmm. programs fail, uh, mm-hmm. according to the panel, was the inability to prove program performance. Mm. And this was mentioned 93.5% of the times. That's almost mm-hmm. unanimous uh, mm-hmm. among the 34 people. It received mm-hmm. the highest score four or five times. It received either the first, second, or third highest score the majority of the times. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, n- near unanimous. Uh, okay. What the panel was talking about here is um, kind of a, a, a build on what we just discussed. Mm. If you do not set up some kind of measurement plan with very specific uh, performance indicators in it prior to the launch of the program, mm-hmm. then how will you know if the program is performing well or not well? Yeah. And I hear this all the time, Paul. It's like the, the, the senior level people think the program costs too much. <laughs> they, yeah. they, 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 they're, they're constantly cutting my budget. My budget is always under pressure. Mm. Um, the CFO wants more breakage. He says the more breakage, the better. Mm. Um, and then my favorite one is we would have gotten those sales. We would have gotten those margins. We would have gotten that advocacy. Uh, anyway, um, we don't really need the program. We all, we, we would have had it, all of it anyway. Yeah. So what all of these things are saying and, You've heard them too, Paul. You hear them every day. Um, mm. What these things are really saying is, by what measure do we think that we would have gotten it anyway? So if there was a pre-period or if there was a control group or mm. if there was any kind of um, um, sense of we are at this spot today, uh, 1.6 transactions per member per month. Mm. Uh, that's in, in a certain segment. That's where mm. I'm at. And mm. it suddenly moves to 1.9 transactions in that segment mm. per member per month. And mm-hmm. our KPI was 1.9. Then we've achieved program performance. Now, it's not mm. as simple as that. There could be mm. a variety of those type of metrics. But without them, how do we know whether or not the thing is working? And then we're subjected to um, mm. this kind of uh, uh, dialogue, especially at the most senior level uh, of mm. uh, the uh, organization. Yeah. And and my sense is, I, I think we're getting better, Mike, and I could be wrong. Maybe I'm just talking to um, to better people. But do you think we're getting better at the analytics? Because I know you've referred to again, it just even in the preview report that we've all come from, you know, marketing over many years where it's been impossible to quantify, you know, um, whether it's, it's PR or it's a TV campaign, you know, those types of marketing couldn't be proven. And I do think you are right. You commented that loyalty marketing is almost held to a higher standard because of the level of accountability. So do you think we're getting better at the overall uh, discipline of loyalty marketing? Yeah, I think we are. Um, I think that many of the people in our industry today are in their second generation of loyalty, if you will. Um, Mm. They might have learned it 20 years ago, uh, learned it with another brand. Um, they learned it at, in a time that was not as disruptive as today's you know, technological and, and demographic environment is. So uh, it's mm. kind of like um, second generation. Um, Phil Rubin calls it loyalty 2.0. Uh, he's one of the guys on our board and was a member of this panel. And uh, I, I think that with that maturation, mm. uh, the disciplines associated with um, 
measuring and performance and all mm. things analytical have, have definitely improved. The second thing, Paula, is that um, we've got more data than we ever had before. Sure. And third is we've got better technologies than we ever had before. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think it's getting better. Um, mm-hmm. But the absence of clear performance measures uh, leads us to the road of failure. Because I don't want okay. somebody to wake up six months from now and say, we're spending all this money on this program. Is it working? Mm. They should never have to ask that question. We should Good point. It is working yeah. on a transactional basis, but it is not working on a, a referral or advocacy basis because we had a mm. standard. We wanted mm. this in the way of um, mm. uh, social behavior or some kind of advocacy or referral. We expected mm. this many people from this segment to do these mm. things and they haven't done them. That mm. also gives the loyalty program operators a chance mm. to say this quarter, this mm-hmm. is what we're going to work on because mm. our other KPIs are looking pretty good team. But uh, we're not picking up on this. So what can we do? What can we try? Um, mm. How should we move the needle? And Wonderful. That, yeah. You know, good, good performance starts with clear goals. And if you don't have clear goals, then uh, you're going to struggle with the question of proving the loyalty program's performance. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I think it deserves second place there, Mike. So absolutely. Um, crystal clear. And I like the way you say, you know, yes, we, we have certain KPIs that have been set and are performing, uh, but it gives us the opportunity of all of the goals are set at the beginning to then realize, okay, which areas do we need to focus on? And I do think social advocacy is one that's uh, it's a, it's a fascinating concept and one we might do a separate discussion on another time, but there's so much power in, um, in referring and we all know about digital, uh, but let's set KPIs around that area that mightn't have been traditionally done. It might have just been around transactions in the past. So really good point to, to, to really have the performance across all metrics before you start. Very good. Cool. Okay. And the next one is one of my favorites. Um, so reason number three why loyalty programs fail, uh, you've summarized as inadequate communications and dialogue. So tell us about that one. Well, I knew it would be your favorite, Paul. <laughs> I like communicating. What can I tell you? <laughs> uh, well, I've heard you talk about this before. Um, yeah. This was mentioned yeah. by 87% of the panel. It, it fell mm-hmm. into the third position and mm-hmm. uh, it got a lot of votes. Um, it, in the, in the top five. That's why it was uh, ranked so high. Mm. And uh, people were talking about um, the uh, inadequacy associated with loyalty marketing communications. Uh, Some of the characteristics of inadequacy, according to the panel, um, the absence of some kind of preference driven approach uh, across multiple communication channels. Instead Mm -hmm. it was messaging just taken on one channel, um, preferences basically ignored or sometimes um, bypassed and uh, not using all the available communication channels that exist. Uh, this mm. is especially challenging in today's environment. But they mm. also talked about characteristics like uh, the absence of surveys, um, the absence of auctions or dialogue programs or any kind of mm. feedback uh, channels coming from the membership. And they also talked about overall very poor member care. Um, member care is expensive and many people want to turn it over to a chat bot and be done with it. And mm. uh, you might not learn a whole lot. Um, um, some people say you can learn an awful lot, but mm. if you don't have a way to elicit response from the loyalty program membership, then mm. you'll not be able to learn from that response and change, uh, the program. Um, and then the 
issue here with inadequate communications. Uh, we've already talked about the lack of versioning. Uh, mm. the, the panelists felt that programs were having trouble looking at communications effect. So the focus became communications costs. Mm. And when somebody saw that line item in the budget, they said, wow, that's an awful lot of money to spend. Mm. Um, why do we version or uh, why do we run mm. a survey? Um, let's just use an automated system on member care. And all these things appeared to be decisions that were cost-driven mm. when they really should have been decisions that were based on the effect that those mm. communications uh, produced. So mm. uh, overall, the panel was quite concerned. Um, they urged loyalty program operators to um, be relevant in their communications and have that relevancy based on personal attributes or lifestyle mm. attributes or certainly uh, where they are uh, in terms of uh, their relationship with the brand. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. That's perfectly okay, Mike. I should have explained to our listeners that you are suffering with a bit of a cold today. Um, so you take your time and, uh, you know, I know it's <laughs> it's never easy to talk uh, when, when you're suffering a little bit. So, um, so don't worry about that. So... I know also on the uh, communications point, and we're still on number three, and relevancy is absolutely critical. And we, we do all, I think, um, you know, talk about that and, and, and work towards it. Um, but one thing I often feel that's missed when, um, when big companies are getting into planning their communications, and it came up in some of your comments in the report, was, you know, to really understand the difference between sending out like sales communications communications versus, you know, loyalty benefit driven communications. Um, so I think that there's something that's often missed in that some communications are welcome and some are less welcome. So is that something that you experience as well? Uh, yeah, I have a, a database, proprietary database that uh, I keep in my uh, consulting practice. Um, and okay. what it does is it measures open rate, response rate, click through rate, um, return on investment associated with um, mostly email, Paula, but uh, it's email only mm. in the context of a loyalty marketing program. Um, mm. You read email standards and uh, you can get them um, many parts of the world. Mm. Uh, Someone will put out a report and say the standard open rate is 3.7%, et cetera, et cetera. If mm. you look at those metrics, they're generally less than 10, certainly less mm. than 15 and almost every issue. In loyalty yeah. program communications, it's double. Wow. And that's, it's the reason that you just mentioned. People yeah. want to communicate with their loyalty program. What yeah. are my benefits? Where, what is my status? Are my benefits being taken away? Or are they going up? How can I redeem? Who should I talk mm. to? Can I tell my friends about this? Um, mm. Is there an easy way to do it? Um, mm. These are things that people want to do. Mm. Um, now, they might not do it every single time. We're all mm -hmm. busy. Um, mm -hmm. sometimes we get our communications at work. Sometimes we get that at home and, mm. uh, there could be a lag, but we want to talk to these programs. And it looks like, according to the Delphi panelists, that the programs mm. don't want to talk back. Wow. 
And I love that actually, Mike, because again, it's, it's um, you know, it just shows your expertise and, and how well you know our industry. So, you know, there's very few people can can comfortably quote, um, you know, a statistic like that, that, you know, literally a loyalty communication typically has double what any other form of communication would have that has a different intention. So thank you for that insight. Um, and it's one I'll be using, I know now, in, <laughs> in meetings going forward to make sure I get my communication support when I'm building programs. Um, so and that's well, it, it, that number moves around a little bit based on channel as well. Like I said, of course, yeah. My yeah. examples are email, and yeah. in the um, established markets, it is still um, the most used channel for loyalty communications. But mm. I'll go into other markets: uh, Caribbean, Latin America, certain places in Asia, where mm. mobile is the uh, most frequently used channel, and the communication changes to text. And here's a really good example. Um, I love text communications, but in certain markets, they carry a cost. Yeah. The cost sometimes is borne by the person receiving the text. Ooh. So now I am charging my loyalty program members <laughs> to listen to me, send them irrelevant information. Wow. And you wonder why your opt-in rate for um, text drops off. And then yeah. my second favorite, uh, the client spoke to their advertising agency, um, very mm-hmm. respected, good firm, solid communicators, right? Well, mm-hmm. you know, they write all that fluff. It, most markets, there's a 150 character limit on text. Yeah. You can't write much fluff, Paul, with 150 characters. <laughs> well, especially, you know, I mean, we've got GDPR, we've all the opt-out requirements and yeah, there, there's a lot to fit into a, a very short space. So I completely agree with you. Um, so I think brevity is the uh, the guiding principle in that particular instance. <laughs> yeah. The, the, what the panel was saying here is that uh, because of inadequacies, deficiencies, if you will, in communications, we yeah. can walk around and we say we have weak engagement. We wish our engagement yeah. levels were higher. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons. I, I always um, viewed this, Paul, in a relationship context. Um, many people still call it relationship marketing uh, mm. in the early days. Um, you know, Regis McKenna, I think, uh, was the first guy to talk about that and had the privilege of, of working with him when I lived out in California. And we just called it relationship marketing. And he used to say, think of it in a larger relationship context. Hmm. I mean, now the relationship is between the customer and the brand. Yeah. Um, but think of the relationship between say spouse or a significant yeah. other. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't talk to each other, you're headed yeah. for trouble. <laughs> one person does all the talking, you're headed for trouble. Yeah. If one person never listens, provides yeah. any kind of feedback, you're headed for trouble. And the biggest one of all is when one person yells and shouts at the other. Oh, okay. Yeah. These things lead to breakdowns part yes. of the human condition. So mm-hmm. I know that that might seem ridiculous to some, but if we put that context around yeah. the relationship between a brand and a customer and a loyalty marketing program mm. and adopt some of the same characteristics that the yeah. relationship counselors would suggest would adopt, we'd be a lot better off. So know what they want to hear, when they want to hear it, how they want to hear it. Yeah. Allow them to listen to you. Allow them to ask questions. Allow mm-hmm. them to provide feedback so that you mm-hmm. can modify um, dialogue. Mm-hmm. And if you do that successfully, even if you don't do it with everybody in the program, yeah. uh, if you do it successfully, you'll learn a lot more 
and the membership will be quite happy and uh, the program will not have to uh, head down the path towards failure. Absolutely. And I think it is a useful lens, Mike. And and you're right to say that some people might find it ridiculous. But in my experience, something that everyone can relate to in terms of everyday life and apply a principle into business that they they already understand, it then does at least and they remember it, you know. So they might not want to use that language in the next board meeting. But if they treat their customers as if they're a member of the family, then absolutely, I think those members feel that intention. And there is just a much more respectful style of communication. And even to your point earlier, the technology facilitates all of this now. So so there's absolutely no reason not to be listening as well as talking. Agreed. Cool. Okay. Um, I think that takes us nicely on then, Mike, to um, the next uh, reason that loyalty programs fail. And I'm looking at your report here and I'm seeing that inadequate C-level support is what the panel came in at at number four. And again, this was a a topic that was already brushed on uh, with reasons number one and two. Um, Sure. They didn't pick on any particular C-level officer. Um, mm-hmm. But I have a little quote directly from one of the panelists. As you know, Paul, in the full report, we'll throw in the quotes of the people who are on the panel to just get yeah. a sense of what they were thinking. So I love this one right here. The quote is, if the top folks do not care or are not 100% behind the program, it will fail. Mm-hmm. All the items listed by the panel that affect the program, if the top people are engaged, it all can be fixed or adjusted. I think this is at least half the battle, but I could argue it is the whole thing. Wow. So 83.9% of the panel assigned weight um, to this particular reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was um, when it was on the scorecard, some people left it off and gave it a zero. But, but for people who scored it, it had the second highest weighted average. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it is a concern that um, people dive into these loyalty programs. Uh, Mm. We got to have one. Competition has one. Uh, My Mm. wife said I need one. Uh, (laughs) Excuse me. All kinds of reasons. And then they back away their support because they think they have many more pressing priorities um, at the enterprise level. Then the program goes on. uh, It needs more resources. There's not enough money. Um, The funding rate gets cut. The uh, number of points or miles for redemption go up. All Mm. these funny things start to happen that are a response to it's costing us too much. So if I don't have the support of the C-level officers, and again, it's probably because I'm not using my data and I can't prove performance and I'm not talking to my customers. Yeah. And if all those things start to happen, no wonder they don't have support. And it's a wonder why um, we face these issues uh, and programs become Mm. ineffective. Uh, The inability to give this level um, the Mm. information they need, the performance (laughs) indicators they need, the proof that they need, uh, and then complain about it. But if we can't give it to them, no wonder they're not going to be too engaged with us. So this is a, um, it's a critical finding. Um, some of the panel felt it was getting much better, uh, but some of them felt that it's still uh, an issue as the quote. Okay. 
Okay. And as we've talked about earlier, Mike, there are a total of 10 reasons in this uh, report. Uh, We've covered four of them and I would like to cover off the fifth and then we might just briefly mention the others and then obviously um, tell people where they can get access to the full report. So um, we're going to talk about um, item number five. And um, again, I wasn't involved with the report last year and delighted to be involved this year. Uh, But last year, it seemed that the prediction was for a frictionless future. Um, So that's what the experts were uh, expecting. But it seems like we haven't quite achieved that because the fifth reason that loyalty programs fail uh, came in as there's still too much friction. 83, uh, almost 84 percent, Paula. Uh, of the panelists uh, weighted this factor on their scorecard. It ranked fifth, as you mentioned. Mm. And yes, last year's report, we were trying to predict the future of loyalty marketing. Mm. And in the predictions, we said someday there's going to be no friction. Yeah. Uh, That someday isn't here yet. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess in in both our experience, you know, not enough changes in 12 months with the best will in the world. Something like friction uh, comes in so many aspects of business, not just loyalty. So um, I wouldn't have expected it to be eliminated in in the 12 months since your last last report. But um, yeah, it seems that uh, we've got a lot of work to do on this area then if um, if nearly 84% are seeing this as, as a key reason for failure. Yeah, the, uh, the panelists uh, cited three areas um, of particular uh, concern, areas that program operators can uh, isolate and attack easily. The first was it's too difficult for the member to enroll. Yeah. We need to make enrollment short, sweet, brief, and use the technologies at our disposal. Yeah. Uh, the second was it's too difficult to tie the transaction uh, to the member or the, or the payment type. Um, I shouldn't need to say, here's my number in order for um, a business to be able to tie the transaction to me uh, as a member. Mm-hmm. I ought to be able to just you know, instantly be able to uh, have that ability, probably using the mobile phone, Paula, depending yeah. on what part of the world I'm in. Mm-hmm. And if I can't remember the number or I lost my card, uh, that's one of my favorites. I lost my card. Yeah. Um, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't even be using cards anymore, but we still are. Um, and I ought to be able to say, there's Mike, there's Paula, they're members of my program. They just did this transaction and not make anybody, you know, send in a missing transaction or a missing visit form. Um, I hate those. I know. Um, and the third one, the third one was the panel felt it's still too difficult to redeem. Too many hoops to jump through. Wow. So all these things, this, friction causing things, um, they impact program momentum and that could weigh on performance. So, you know, give people a bunch of hurdles. They don't like to jump. They don't want to jump. They'll just simply walk away. Yeah. And uh, I think that's what the panelists were talking about. Although uh, as it fell down the list here uh, in the number five position, maybe we are making some progress Mm -hmm. and maybe in the future we will see uh, frictionless programs. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I think as consumers, it's instinctive. We all know how busy we are, how frustrated we are if somebody feels, you know, like they're asking too much of us. So um, it shouldn't be that hard to translate that into exactly, you know, how we expect our programs to operate. Um, but anyway, it seems that friction is still an issue. And um, I suppose we'll continue to, uh, to communicate that to our, to our C-suite executives. Um, 
so then do you want to just summarize for us, Mike, then uh, the, the various other reasons that uh, appeared on the list? The first, excuse me, Paul, um, yeah. the first five were um, very significant in terms of the percentage of the panel that mentioned them mm-hmm. and uh, what the uh, weighted scores looked like. Um, they were, uh, um, you know, between nine and 13 um, on an average. And that includes some people who gave an attribute of zero. Um, but the next five, no, the next four were very closely uh, lumped together and uh, very little differentiation. Um, 75, 74, 79% of the panel mentioned them. Words are almost the same and considerably lower than the top five. So I'll just rattle those off quickly. Okay. Uh, we were very absent in soft benefits. Okay. Six. Employee disengagement. Number seven, when you read the final report, you'll see a lot of comments about this. We mm. can't even get our own people interested in the program. Wow. Um, inadequate funding uh, was uh, number eight. And mm-hmm. number nine was lame rewards. Um, one of my favorites, Paula. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who wants a lame reward? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Let's have a let's have a rewards program, but not put any kind of reward in it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, those were uh, six, seven, eight, and nine. Yeah. Um, there were some other reasons that came up, um, allocation, single channel, single tender, which were um, reasons for failure, mostly mentioned by the North American panelists mm-hmm. um, and not mentioned by the EMEA, Latin American or Asia Pacific uh, panelists. Uh, that's because you're part of the world, Paula. They don't have single channel programs mm-hmm. and they don't have single tender programs, so we still have them in the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. Some people wrote in reasons um, that, you know, they were worried about the terminology, say, around um, inadequate sea level support. Uh, doesn't that mean poor financial planning? So mm-hmm. they wrote that in as a reason. And the, the committee, uh, the, the panel vetted that and decided it was just another interpretation of a reason that we already had on the list. Mm-hmm. But we included the verbatim comments in the final report. Mm-hmm. And uh, as uh, by the time this uh, show airs, the report will be out in the public eye mm-hmm. and it will be available at the Wise Marketer, mm-hmm. uh, wisemarketer.com. Mm-hmm. And you can um, download not only this year's report, mm-hmm. but also um, last year's. And all that you need to do is um, give yeah. us your name and your email. Amazing. Trying to go as frictionless as we possibly can go. <laughs> of course, yes, yes. Well, you know, preaching to the converted. So, so well done for uh, for for following through on that. Um, and I will give you a chance now, um, as we wrap up, Mike, to um, maybe just tell people exactly about the Wise Marketer and Loyalty Academy. Um, your two um, your two organizations that um, I'm certainly very you know very big fan of, as you know. Uh, but just in case there's anyone listening who hasn't yet subscribed to either of those. Um, you can obviously just give us an introduction to each of them. And just before you do that, I, I did want to just kind of quote my favorite sentence in your overall preview report, because it gave me a lot of confidence, I suppose, in terms of our overall industry and where we're going. And it was purely just in your conclusion section, Mike. And literally what, um, what you've written is that virtually every vertical market 
in every region of the world has adopted the strategy to foster deeper customer relationships and drive business results. Um, and I have to say that really landed for me, just, you know, the reassurance that people realize that you can't just be transactional anymore, or expect people to do business with you. You do have to invest in these deep customer relationships. So, so I really liked that kind of closing sentence in terms of its impact um, that, that we're having, I guess, on the business world. Well, we believe it's a $55 billion industry globally. Uh, that would be U.S. dollars. Yeah. And um, the that doesn't count the assignment of value to the reward. Yeah. That's just design, operations, analytics, technology, et cetera. Wow. Um, it's a huge business. Yeah. And we sometimes take it for granted. So yeah. we've entered the second generation, if mm -hmm. you will. Mm -hmm. it, we have the technologies at our disposal. Yeah. We have greater understanding of what causes what to happen. Yeah. And we're trying to keep up with the, with the um, customer um, who is in front of us and disrupting all kinds of things. Plus the demographics of our membership are changing. We're changing rapidly depending upon what part of the world we're in. So all of these things mean that we need to stay on our toes. Mm. So what the Delphi panel hopes is that this report will give you some indications of where pitfalls might lie mm -hmm. so that you can avoid them. Mm. Uh, as we uh, often say, failure is not an option. <laughs> Wonderful. So listen, just before uh, we say goodbye then, Mike, just tell us about the Wise Marketer and the Loyalty Academy in terms of what, uh, what role each of those plays for listeners. Well, the Wise Marketer has been around for 15 years. It is an online publication and research resource mm -hmm. uh, for the loyalty CRM customer engagement communities. Um, publication is, uh, is free. All mm -hmm. you need to do is subscribe. Mm -hmm. um, there is a weekly news bulletin that goes out, talks about uh, new happenings in uh, the world of loyalty and CRM from around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the website itself has got a very rich archive uh, and library of um, things that have happened over the years, as well as some research reports and some sponsored supplied materials. Um, Wise Marketer gets uh, no funding from um, the audience it serves. Mm -hmm. um, it does receive funding from sponsors mm. um, who are interested in maintaining a thought leadership position in the loyalty space. Um, the research services are also there. Those are for fee. Some people will um, ask the wise marketer to conduct research on a specific, say, vertical market. Entry, um, and we will uh, issue that report. Uh, those are not published. Okay. The uh, Loyalty Academy, a sister company, um, the Academy is a educational institution. Um, it is the only um, institution in the loyalty world that provides a certification program. Mm -hmm. uh, the initial CLMP and for Certified Loyalty Marketing Professional, all is one of these. And uh, it required uh, all people to mm. um, meet very specific standards in terms of coursework mm -hmm. uh, along a variety of subjects, some of which we touched on this morning, mm -hmm. and well as completion of a, a final examination. Uh, the Board of Regents uh, governs the issuance of the certification. Um, the board is uh, made up of uh, six members, different parts of the world, and we operated like a university, Paula. Mm -hmm. uh, courses, um, three programs like the CLMP, we mm. want to run a very large conference uh, once a year, mm. and uh, we provide training services. Um, the library at the academy is much deeper. 
uh, very, very, very extensive and isn't available to the public per se, because a lot of it contains proprietary research uh, things that are done. But uh, we track the global loyalty space and we offer people the opportunity to improve their own skills or the skills of their team um, by joining the Academy's uh, um, coursework mm -hmm. or certification program. Both properties uh, have their own website, LinkedIn, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, both properties are owned by the Wise Marketer Group, mm -hmm. uh, which is a privately held enterprise with um, uh, global ownership. Wonderful. Well, I'll certainly make sure that I include links again to both of those properties in the show notes, Mike, um, as I have done previously. And um, yes, you guys provide an amazing service to us as loyalty marketeers around the world. So um, as we close, I just want to say, first of all, thank you and congratulations on the amazing piece of work in the Delphi report. And um, yes, I just really want to say really thanks for your support. And, um, you know, thanks from everybody at Let's Talk Loyalty. Thanks, Paul. See you soon. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like me to send you the latest show each week, simply sign up for the show newsletter on letstalkloyalty.com and I'll send you the latest episode to your inbox every Thursday. Or just head to your favorite podcast platform, find Let's Talk Loyalty and subscribe. Of course, I'd love your feedback and reviews. And thanks again for supporting the show.